0: everyone to the seventh of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and they're free and open to the public. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia, and I'm serving as the host for these discussions. The link to the discussion is the same every day, so if you found us through the Zoom link, you'll find us here with the same link every weekday at 5 p.m. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for guests, and don't be afraid to suggest yourself as a guest. You can also hear these COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for the Slow Disaster Podcast, and I'll also make the link available to you via Twitter. Tomorrow's guest is Adam Rogers. Adam writes about science for Wired Magazine. Before coming to Wired, he was a night science journalism fellow at MIT and a reporter for Newsweek. Uh, Adam has a news story up today on Wired, and you should check it out. It's called An Old Source for Potential New COVID-19 Drugs, Blood Serum. It's, a, it's really a great, interesting read. We're going to talk about COVID-19 and the test snafu, vaccines, Silicon Valley, and the tech economy in the age of COVID-19, and more. As of today, there are globally 407,485 confirmed cases of COVID-19 according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 372,563 cases yesterday. 49,768 of those cases are in the United States, up from 41,708 reported yesterday. There are now reported a total of 600 deaths in the United States. As I was getting ready to talk to our guest today, Andy Revkin on COVID Calls, I was thinking about the real challenge we have simply in the ways that we talk about disasters. We usually describe them as events, things that happen to us, things that we recover from. But I think it's much more the case, and I think we're seeing this here, that a disaster is usually a great number of interconnecting processes. They don't come to us from the outside, but they reveal the society that we already have. And we don't recover in some absolute way. The disaster becomes a part of us, becomes part of the fabric of our lives, and our memories, psychology, our laws, and in our science. And it's especially this issue of how the COVID-19 pandemic reveals the world of science and American science, especially, that I'm hoping to talk about with Andy Revkin today. So let me introduce him. Andy Revkin is a pathbreaking environmental journalist. Previously, he was strategic advisor for environmental and science journalism at the National Geographic Society. Through 2017, he was a senior reporter for climate change at the independent investigative newsroom, ProPublica. He was a reporter for the New York Times from 1995 through 2009, when I first started following his writing then. In 2007, he created the .earth environmental blog, a staple of the New York Times that moved uh, to the opinion page in 2010 and ran until 2016. He's also a performing songwriter. And I got to see some of that over the weekend if you're following and I'll let him talk a little bit about his broadcasts that he's doing. He was performing this weekend for people online, um, performing a a brunch concert um, online. He was a frequent accompanist of Pete Seeger, in fact. Now he's director of the new initiative on communication and sustainability at Columbia University's Earth Institute. So hi, Andy, and thanks so much for joining the COVID calls today.
1: It's great to be with you. And it's wonderful that you're doing this. It's a a rigorous thing to try to fit into a life where you're teaching and writing doing all kinds of things, but it's it's vital. So thank you.
0: Well, I appreciate you joining us. And I want to encourage everyone who's on to please ask questions in the chat. Feel free (coughs) to send questions throughout the conversation and I'll get to them as I can. So I I just want to dive right in. Andy, I want to ask you um, about science journalism in this moment. Uh, What are the challenges for journalists in the field right now. And I I think I'm interested even in knowing like what's a day in the life for a journalist trying to cover this story right now.
1: Well, I should let you listen to this um, interview I did with Laurie Garrett, who's been writing about pandemics, uh, well, epidemics since uh, the 70s, believe it or not, uh, since before AIDS, as she put it. And she, her warning to all those who are diving in now to this beat, uh, the pandemic beat, And it's going to be with us from henceforth as a much bigger part of health reporting than I think it was. Her warning was that she also, in the early 90s, did war war reporting. And she said this is worse than war reporting, because on an hour-to-hour basis, you're second-guessing yourself. The consequences of something you say or don't say uh, can actually kill or not kill people in real time. You know, chronicling a war... You're as a writer, you're not actually changing the war, except uh, CBS changed the Vietnam War a little bit, you know, at a certain point in broad- broadcasting the atrocities on the ground. But this is real time stuff. And so she said it wears you out. It, it, can, it can really um, degrade your, your well being really rapidly. So the, the hope there is that people who are on, on this beat, there's so many great journalists and now local journalists being thrown in. That they have to reserve some space for their own, not just physical safety, but their mental um, safety going forward. Uh, I'm not de- directly engaged. I've been in those situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, 9/11 reporting was sure. not, but they are too. It's not like this. It's not the it, you know 9/11 was a huge calamity for New York. Uh, I was reporting on the ground from the the dust and the, the like. Uh, but for most of the nation, it was. Um, really didn't have that, that feeling of intimacy. And here, you know, this little microbe has spread from a Wuhan wet market to, through complex means to become a global peril and a global transformational force um, in the space of a few months. And now it's in everyone's life.
0: How are reporters, when the news is literally uh, coming at us so fast from many different countries, trying to recover this as a global pandemic, how are they able to do the work of developing sources? I mean, so much of this discussion we've been having in public is whose word can we trust here? Journalists right. have that same <clears> problem. Like, I mean, they cultivate some sources over a long time, but they also have to develop new sources. How does that even work in a fast-moving situation like this?
1: It's, uh, it's a very flawed process, I think. Um, just in my conversation earlier today with a couple of the world's leading modelers of, uh, of uh, the, how you navigate policy in times of incomplete information. There are even models popping up now. that. Are, so if you see a clever infographic on, on social media showing you something about what's happening, you, you can't even implicitly know that that's correct. Without some pause and reflect uh, traits, whether you're a journalist or, or a news consumer now, I, when I was teaching at Pace University for six years, the last six years when I was doing .Earth at the New York Times, I came up with this exercise for students. I called it the backtrack journal. Backtrack I mean, journal. Every, if you, people Google for that, I think I actually made it into a hashtag. Um, yeah. Uh, it, it basically, it's a pause and reflects, where did this come from? This thing I just that just caught my attention, whether it's an infographic or a, a quote, uh, in, in quotes, uh, ha- trace it back to its source. And that practice, I think, you can't do it constantly, but it gives you a mental acuity that, you know, Think about your own thinking. Think about how this internet thing is designed to distract you. It's designed to hack you. It's designed to either inflame you or validate you. And if you're not aware of that in a situation like this, with you know a president saying, "Well, I'll be open by Easter," and and uh, you know epidemiologists saying, "No," and and some reasonable people saying, "There's a middle ground." You're right. It's a very hard. This is a really tough landscape. Not just for reporters, but for all of us.
0: Well, you mentioned Trump and this um, statement he made about wanting the country to be open again for Easter. We'll have time to parse exactly what we think that means, I guess. But you know, I mean, reading the the newspaper, I remember there was the OAL. You know, there are different sections, and there's the yeah. there's politics, and there's the op-ed page, and there was a science page, and it seems like these days. Uh, even reporters who who have to specialize in various different areas, we can't draw those hard distinctions between the science page and the politics yeah. page anymore. I mean, if if a reporter is covering a news conference where the president is up there giving health information, epidemiological information, scientific information, um, they can't parse that anymore, can they? I mean, have our science reporters really become our politics reporters?
1: Oh, no. And there are all these, still there are these institutional inertial factors in newsrooms that create immense frustrations for those who are specialists, not just uh, science reporters, but um, business reporters. You know, the ones who know economics, for example. In a newsroom, especially in a rush, especially in the internet age where, um, especially because our main lens on the world is through politics. including most editors at newspapers who rise in the ranks are political editors. The people who run, I'm trying to think of a newspaper I know where the top editorship, maybe the Wall Street Journal might be different. was mm-hmm. it wasn't for politics. So we have these biases toward framing everything as a politics thing. And that leads, and, and rarely still will you see um, a story in the health, in the sort of lifestyles part of a newspaper being vetted by the science desk. If they have one, of course, you know, and I'm talking from the vantage point of having worked for the New York Times from 1995 to 2016 in different ways. And there you had a science desk uh, and that and that they bolstered great capacities. You know, when I was doing climate reporting in the paper in um, the year 2000, there were, I think, three of us. And now there's, I think, 17 or so people on that beat. Um, Just the capacities. Yeah, just at the Times. But compare that to, you know, your average newspaper, you know, average newsroom you look at the statistics, the, the real disaster for American discourse is the collapse, utter collapse of the news business in the last couple of years. Uh, small newspapers are imploding. And what comes there, the same kind of instant net coverage, whether it's, um, and this is where now push is coming to shove, because now we have a story, as you were saying at the very beginning, where local behavior is a huge part of Global consequence here, at least national consequence, and so if you don't have that capacity in the newsroom mm. to do the vetting, to say, "Hey, wait a minute, do we know this?" to not just repost these ridiculous um, memes that come out of Washington, then, then we 're really in deep trouble. Uh, you know Just today, Jerry Falwell was re- re-op- reopening that uh, Christian university, and um, and you know that means how do you cover that in Virginia? Mm-hmm. Is is a huge question uh, and whether you just if you just do he says she says coverage That doesn't help your audience at all. So this this is a troubling time And one hopes is so you know the last week or so I've been examining virtually every Societal aspect of this I had one of these conversations last week was with a, a, an artist a comedian and a storyteller mm-hmm. Who's who's stock in trade is all exploding? You know, how do we tell stories to when we're not in a room at the library anymore? Uh, and how do we? Uh, how do I create poetry? How do I engage audiences in poetry or teach kids? When I used to take them down by the river and have them write poetry, and it was wonderful. But that's that level of reinvention um, that's required. Some of that you could say would be transitory, in the sense that there will be a time when we can reengage with each other physically. But for the news business, I think this is an epic moment.
0: This was a question uh, that I asked Rob Meyer last week about what it was like. Even inside the newsroom, not a space that you expect people to be able to, uh, to social distance. I mean, the essence of good right. reporting is the opposite of that, right? Um, and obviously, well, we have the technological capacity to, to work at a distance. But I mean, what, how is this going to change reporting, do you think?
1: Oh, I think, I, you know, I don't see those as big impediments. I, I've developed wonderful relationships with sources in the past week. in in india you know i I, one of my conversations last week was with a great reporter in india and with a microbiologist there um dr kang and and that's what's really cool about the moment in all of these contexts whether it's media or the arts uh, history is going to be written or or actually there's a sociologist at columbia seamus khan who who's he just leaped into the fray and last week he posted a course he's teaching online for any high school students who want on how to be a sociologist, Mm. how to chronicle this moment Mm -hmm. and how to do it in a way that history will have some interest in, you know, a a decade or two from now. I thought that was fantastic. Uh, He's uh, Seamus Khan, S-H-A-M-U-S-K-A-H-N on Twitter. And, uh, you know, that, that capacity is unparalleled now to, to sort of become a, Aggregator or a facilitator of others' capacities. Um, and, and 1996, right? I had just started at the New York Times in 1995, and the first big giant disaster story that I was thrust into was the crash of Flight 800 on Long Island. Right, big 747 exploded taking off for Paris. Uh, high school student, 223 people on board. Kabloui. Everyone thought it was terrorism. Uh, it wasn't in the end, um, despite continuing conspiracy theories. And we had, sort of like today, we just, you know, I hadn't thought about this till the, right now. Um, every day, the National Transportation Safety Board and um, a pretty blowhard kind of official from the FBI and others would stand up at a press conference in Smithtown. And we were all desperate for real information. We knew were, the Navy was offshore, uh, retrieving wreckage. And, and we were giving given pretty torqued information. The FBI wanted the case. They wanted it to be terrorism. So everything was kind of torquy. So I kind of poked around. This is July 1996. And I found a website in July 1996 for the salvage, the Navy salvage team that mm. was offshore. And I actually found the email for the... the I can't remember if it was an admiral or a captain who was in charge. And I started a little conversation with him mm. by email just to double check some things. It, I don't think it powerfully shaped a particular story, but it showed you, think about that in the context. Now, anyone who's a reporter who claims they can't find a source right now is, is just incompetent or hasn't really thought through this situation. It's, it's great to do that. And you have to have that, you still have to have that critical, you know, reporters question kind of approach. You can't assume, you know, anything, uh, and this this is true on climate you know where too i um, I, f- I think I see so much of a great rush there 's been great climate reporting in recent years wonderful, fantastic with all kinds of infographics and drone footage and stuff and, but i I see some losses i don 't see critical questions being asked that that really are back to like what caused this wildfire what do mm. I know what don 't I know mm. You know what what are the who are the responsible characters? Is this just climate change because climate change is like the thing I've been thinking about, or is this climate change or there's is this vulnerability change on the ground you know mm-hmm. and, and so in this case too today or now even more consequentially, it's just finding a way to get back to the basics of good old fashioned reporting who what where when why, and how did we get here and where do we go and and knowing when to say we don't know um, which the, is a problem that officials often fail to. Say you know we can't help you that right now. Um,
0: I, I mean, I, the story you're telling about Flight 800 is really interesting, and I know because you're describing, I think how how good journalists work is that you you know you you keep trying to go find the sources until you find somebody who can who can talk with you, and 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 I I want to ask about that in the context of these big government agencies today at this moment with this administration, which has been so. I mean, it's not that they're anti-science casually. They're anti-science as a matter of policy. Do you think that's made it harder for reporters to get behind the story on this? I mean, obviously, you know, calling the the a cabinet secretary is one thing. You're going to be waiting around for the callback. But even calls, you know, deeper into agencies, trying to find somebody who will tell you exactly what's going on. Do you think that's harder now in the era of Trump and science? Or, or no, journalists are still able to, make those calls, find those sources.
1: The first three and a half years of this administration, there were amazing achievements by journalists who, partially and largely because of the bravery of uh, career government uh, functionaries, were able to get some reality from the, behind the, the the veil. This was, you know, I was doing this in the George W. Bush years. And um, again, it often requires the guts of the person with the document or the um, anecdote that can be verified to come forward. Uh, I think that's been sustained pretty well. In this particular moment, uh, yesterday I was tweeting, I agree with Jay Rosen at New York University who's been so critical of the press and how they're essentially enabling Trump by shaping so much of our discourse and coverage around Trump said this today, right, and right. then saying it's not true. And basically it's amplifying things that would, maybe there's another way to get around it completely. So yesterday I was tweeting, um, you know, I, I know some White House correspondents, I know it's not possible, but wouldn't it be nice if you could just say, uh, I have a question for the back row.
0: Hmm.
1: They, I, I have, so if it's a particular question about a science, science a point of science, yeah. or a point of public health well, policy,
0: don't put it to ask
1: the- Ask the back row, and then literally, I'm not, you know, I'm not talking to you. Mm-hmm. And if it's a point about leadership or Trump's position, you know, quote Trump. But it's like the media are in a very hard place right now, and I'm not saying this is easy. I'm not even saying it's possible, but it just shows you how, uh, how it's how amazingly well he has been able to co-opt this uh, this system. Uh, and I, the answers are not as fast as facile as what I just described. You've covered scientists uh,
0: before working in the government who find themselves in difficult position, where they find themselves on the, maybe the wrong side ideologically with with the president. Yeah. And I'm thinking of Dr. Fosse right now and this story that was in, in the news today about you know Trump may have finally be losing his his patience with Dr. Fossey, right? Which is an interesting framing for that. But I think it does really, I wonder if you can say a little bit more about that, I mean, in terms of climate too, I mean, what, um, What's it yeah. like to, you know, do you think inside some of these agencies where, you know, they're trying as hard as they can to get the science right and to protect the public, and then they have to go out there and basically stand next to the leader of the administration who's undermining, who's undermining them with every with every press conference. I mean, that's a very difficult yeah. situation for scientists and and government scientists to find themselves in, isn't
1: it? It is. Um, this came up today actually in my discussion with some of the folks on my my show my sustain what uh show and rod schoonover who has is a scientist a physicist who had been on the um national intelligence council including under trump he's the one who quit fairly famously earlier uh, last year when he was being muzzled and what he could say about um climate at a hearing right. he said you know there is a there's a, there's a, an important point to be made about the difference between um scientific information and policy and that that you know he wasn't saying trump has every right to be uh, you know the kind of figure he is being uh, but he was saying this is science scientism which you probably know as a historian is a thing meaning this sort of the idea that because public health calculations around the COVID-19 virus say we need absolute clampdown, that that's the path forward uh, without thinking about this bigger issues of economic dislocation and which will have its own health impacts as well as other societal impacts. So it's kind of like, you know, and I, there is a fine line, uh, not a fine line, there's a blurry area where science has a role, it, but it doesn't determine uh, what government does the, sometimes. In government, you know, we elected a guy <laughs> Whatever you, however, however you want to choose him, gaining him gaining office, and how to ca- characterize that, um, he's the president, and um, that there are certain aspects of what happens that that he has the right to determine until he's unelected.
0: This, um, to me, one of the one of the perennial stories here has been it goes back to the beginning of the administration that there are people, his former chiefs of staff, people in various high ranking positions. Who, you know, the sense was, well, you know, why would they serve him? And the answer was, we do it not for him, we do it because for the military.
1: Or we do it for, oh, right. for NASA. Right. Or
0: we do it for NOAA or whatever. Or, it is. for
1: America or for America. You know, yeah. they, they do their but job as best they can. Yeah.
0: That's tricky. That's a slippery slope. You know, at what point do they find themselves not standing for for science or standing for the military, but actually yeah. When do they know when the tables have turned? You know, it's like you were saying earlier about when does the media realize that they're not covering a story, they've become mouthpieces yeah. for Trump. I, I suppose it's a hard question to grapple with, but I've been thinking about this a lot with Dr. Fossey, particularly.
1: Oh my God. I know. And I, 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 I know, I, I can't remember if I, I've, I've interviewed him a couple of times way, way, way back on other things. Uh, and Fauci is, um, I'm sure every hour of every day, he's making the calculation you just described. He's saying, can I do more by staying in than by leaving? And I I think for assuredly, that's a pretty simple answer. It's still yes. And it would have to be a complete and utter and gross abuse by Trump um, that would convince him that somehow quitting would serve the 325 million Americans who are stressing out over what to do. Right.
0: Let me ask you about a little bit about what, what you're up to. I should have started with this, but I wanted to jump right into the reporting question. So you're the the director of a new uh, initiative at the earth Institute of Columbia, the initiative on communication and sustainability. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I mean,
1: yeah, sure. So, you know, 35 years of reporting the last 10 of them, I really did started digging in much more on, um, the quote unquote, softer sciences, sociology, behavior. Um, 2006 was the first time on the climate story. So I've been writing about climate since the eighties. I'd written hundreds and hundreds of stories by then three books by then uh, won a bunch of awards. And the first time I interviewed a social scientist about climate, I think was 2006, really about behavioral science. And she, it was Helen Ingram at UC Irvine. And she was telling me, well, you know, people vote on things that are soon, salient, and certain. Mm. And here I am as a storyteller, a journalist, telling people what to worry about, having that blithe kind of um, deficit model that people talk about. If I just fill your head with the stuff in my head, then you'll be like me. And I realized, wow, do I want to spend, and the more I dug in, I was like going, oh my God, journalism is really limiting in what it can do. And I did my blog, uh, which was started significantly because of that kind of complexity. And uh, so, and then I taught for six years after I left the paper and kept doing .Earth as an opinion column. And uh, the course I did at Pace University, this leads to your answer, it was um, called Blogging a Better Planet. And, and my title was Senior Fellow for Environmental Understanding, which I, I invented the title at PACE. And it was it was a reflection of my realization I had a whole new mountain to climb, mm. which was that conventional exposition, storytelling is not going to change the world. And and, and at Columbia, when Alex Halliday came in to, to lead the Earth Institute, he's a geochemist uh, by training, got a knighthood last year in, over in England, where he's from. And He's very committed to this idea that, you know, we haven't paid enough attention to the communication questions um, that we face if we want to build a more sustainable planet, resilient societies uh, with some, some nature left over. And I had convinced him that, hey, you know, let's, let's have an initiative. I've, I had had this in my head for years and finally I found the right reception, the right neuroreceptor <laughs> mm-hmm. And in Alex Halliday. I said, you know, we need to figure out how to make information matter. And let's build a, let's have a lab. It's much more of a lab and a practicum than, than a um, scholarly thing, at least for now. It's, it's a, an initiative means it's an idea. Right. It's, not yet a, it's not yet a center or a program. And the whole idea is to look for gaps, identify gaps in progress on an issue like climate or disaster risk reduction in some context and say, well, when, when, is, when the gap is a communication failure, what can we do there? And sometimes like just today on this conference call the, on the webinar I did with um, these modelers of risk, I, you know, some really interesting innovations have come around through getting artists together with them to uh, how do you visualize public health? I, 10 years ago on Dot Earth, I wrote a piece asking this question, how do we visualize public public health? We know what it is, right? It's like, but it's really statistical. Public health is statistical. It's, and there was a uh, Howard Coe at H- health and human services back then was on a panel with me. And he was saying, you know, you go to these hearings and Bob Giuseppe was on this panel too. And they were saying, you know, at these hearings, some Senator will say, well, where's the bodies, right? <laughs> you you say this uh, coal, coal fire power plants are killing uh, 13,000 people a year. Show me the bodies. And, and we still have to figure out how to do that. And this is a perfect example right now with COVID-19 of how do you prompt inspire, enable people to make wiser choices. You're not, not gonna tell them or order them or badger them to do so. You have to, has to come from within. And, and there are some interesting experiments underway. So that's the kind of thing we're trying to foster is a crosstalk, building a network within Columbia and outside that that's getting people who would never normally talk to each other. And even in fields, well, as you know, at a university, Uh, there's all these barriers to cross-talk and collaboration uh, and breaking some of those down so we can have more creative pathways forward is part of one goal. And the thing I just started this sustain what video chat is like an experiment. To me, it articulates what I'm trying to foster. You know, I don't know if StreamYard is the best platform to reach the widest audience. Um, It's cool that it goes to Facebook and and Periscope, which I barely knew, A mm. month or two ago and, and in YouTube. And now what can I do to build that conversation globally? And that you know, it was like what I did with Dot Earth at the New York Times, my blog. There was no one there saying, hey Andy, we need an environment blog. I just sort of did it. Right. So making sure we build a culture of creative, outreachy, collaborative passion around getting what we know and don't know to have some more meaning in the world. Well, uh, is, is what we're trying to do.
0: I'm really glad that you, we talked about it and, and you explained it in that way because you, you've just, as you probably know, you've um, just gone sort of headlong into one of the perennial issues around disaster research. And, and when I talk about disaster research, I mean it very broadly, everything from social psychology to history yeah. to emergency management. But the question you will always hear asked in the hallways of conferences is, are we reaching practitioners? Is the research getting into the hands of the practitioners? And I would say, you know, there are one or two people with their arms crossed saying, that's not our job. Our job is to to hunker down and do the research and we let somebody else find our journal articles. Um, <laughs> but I think more and more, that's really been um, pushed aside and the the consensus position, I don't want to speak for all of my colleagues, but I do think the consensus position is that, um, first of all, the way the academy is now, we don't have the luxury not to be relevant to policymakers and to practitioners. But once you get to that point, people go back for that second cup of coffee and they say, okay, now what are we going to do? Well, uh, I don't know. Can we find a journalist? Can Can we find, who do we, how do we even begin this process of translation. Now, it sounds like that's what you're taking up uh, in your initiative. But yeah, that's, that's part of it. Sure. So what do we, where do we put the chips? I mean, you know, we are all very busy doing our research. There's a limited amount of time for translation activities. How should we go forward? Should we be devoting less of our time to research and more to translation? Are there certain kinds of actions we can be taking that are higher higher reward, um, maybe less risk. All of us are worried about making tenure, keeping those grants. I mean, academics have a lot of pressure on them. And when they step into this world, it frankly can be a little scary sometimes. So what do you think?
1: Well, it, it, it is a little scary, but what isn't scary right now, right? This is a, a century of epic change. Um, the only thing changing faster than the physical environment is the information environment. And universities right now face a, a, I think, I think this is an existential moment for universities. Uh, I, I tweeted about this a few days ago. I'm not alone by by any means. You know, you've got a, a generation of people, uh, this, this cohort right now, like my younger son who's just graduated from Boston university um, a semester ahead, just in time to come home and not have any job prospects because his field is uh, unraveling. And um, they, the, People, kids are going to be saying, "Why am I spending forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars? Why am I going into debt to learn skills? Uh, maybe I can learn these skills on my own. Maybe I can go on Zoom and find a free class." And you know, WTF to universities? And I think if universities don't rapidly respond in ways that aren't just filling this as like some temporary gap but are pushing forward with how do we build much more capacity to give our students the capacities they need in the world that lies in front of them, then the university system, we, as we know it is going to crumble. Uh, there, uh, I, I really respect deeply and have known for a long time, Michael Crow, uh, down at Arizona state, who's proved that you can do large scale online learning. Uh, he, he still serves tens of thousands of young people, on the ground in physical classrooms and he serves tens of thousands more online. And I'd be curious to talk to, I should get him on my, my video chat soon to talk about what we can learn from them. So as so I really feel, as I said for journalism, this, this is not, I hope universities are not thinking of this as a, oh, let's do some Zoomy stuff, you know, the next couple of weeks and then we'll be back. I don't think it's gonna work that way.
0: But the inflection point is not only then about the remote learning, and we were talking earlier, the opportunities you actually see the way you think this is going to change journalism. So it's not only how the education is delivered, but you think also, do you mean to show the relevance of the education itself and in, in, in terms of oh yeah kinds of subjects we're now going to focus on? I mean, is this finally time to-
1: Well, let's move. I don't think it's subjects. I, think about, I mean, without- Problem, problem it, focus. Without the pandemic, okay? Students need skills and, and ways of learning more than they need to learn a subject, to my mind. You know, what is a historian? What is history? That, those are really important ideas to absorb that I've never become more respectable. I, I mean, every year I become more and more respectful of history because it, it lays out the landscape in ways that give you an understanding of the way the world is now that if you just wake up and look around, yeah. Missing completely, Patrick Keyes, who will be on my program tomorrow at Colorado okay. State.
0: Tell us how to find your program, but I should have.
1: Uh, they should just Google for sustain what? Like sustain the hashtag.
0: what? Hashtag and at Revkin at Revkin on Twitter. Yeah.
1: yeah, I haven't. There's no like home base for it yet. Yeah, yeah. So I'm right just, there with you. <laughs> yeah, we, you know, we dive in to do this. But um, Patrick Keyes wrote a paper with a group of six others or so last year called on what he calls Anthropocene Risk. And it's all about history and context and like whether you're looking at water in, in, in the Middle East or uh, climate issues in, in Sub-Saharan Africa and you're not tracking what really creates water stress or the like, then you're, you're missing things that are big and important. Hold on one second, I gotta close my door. So um,
0: Anthropocene risk, now we're talking deep history.
1: Yeah, and and paleo climate, you know. Gosh, two thousand one, I wrote my first story about what's called paleotempestology, which is a Jeff Donnelly and others are studying past hurricane patterns, and by looking at beach sand that gets blown off the beach into the salt marsh behind the beach, when you have an epic storm, and so you end up with a history book in the marsh. It's like mud, 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 sand, mud, 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 sand. That tells you when there were big storms. And that's very sobering because it tells you that anyone who says, oh my God, there was a big hurricane in Puerto Rico, climate change is missing some important context. Big, strong hurricanes are common in that part of the Caribbean. I wrote a story for the New York Times in 2007. Strong hurricanes common in Caribbean include cooler climates. So, So this is what I said earlier about path dependency and not you know, asking the basic questions as a journalist or, or a, or a consumer of information about climate change or, or other risk, um, you know, saying, well, what do we really know about hurricanes in Puerto Rico? Anyway, just circling back to this key issue with academia, it really, I think this is a big moment and I'm hoping that we can figure out a path forward. So, so the universe, and by the way, even before this, Biological storm hit. I had been pushing, and others have done too. That what are universities doing to um, for states like New York that have created legislation on climate that's mm-hmm. incredibly ambitious and that no one actually knows how to achieve. Right. Where is our extension service role? There should be an extension service role right now for universities on this, on this unfolding disaster what are we doing with our skills
0: risk reduction extension i think we've heard it now here first i think it's a brilliant idea i mean it, it, resilience
1: it also- resilience you know like Absolutely. we have a school of social work they're yeah. wonderful fantastic you know uh, and i've been talking with Susie moser who's a climate adaptation professional for decades uh, who her? she's pursuing a project she calls um uh, fostering the capacity for she she calls the adaptive mind. If people search for adaptive mind and M O S E R, and I would love. I mean, this is again. I was talking to her way before COVID nineteen in in the climate context. And right now, we all need an adaptive mind like never before, and and an, and and an empathic mind, uh, and that you know we all have that in us. But it's you now what can we do to foster and maintain that capacity as this unfolds you know it's there's a huge opportunity and responsibility for academia right now <music>
0: get to a couple of uh, questions here. Um, One is, uh, and this kind of gets back to this issue of what the academy can be doing. Um, One is about, uh, she says, I love the story that Andy tells about talking to his first social scientist. I think that probably made a lot of social scientists and humanists happy when you said that. Um, What advice do you have for us so that we can make the most effective communication, we can be the most effective communicators possible and help to share insights on human causes and consequences of disaster. I, I think the context may, there may be, uh, when we're talking with journalists or other people who are, um, taking, you know, research yeah. and esoteric ideas and putting them out there, out there in the public.
1: It's a, it's an interesting question. It's a really good one. The, um, I guess this, you know, where does the responsibility lie? Of course, some of it lies with the journalist as well, but, to know when to ask the deeper questions about why something is happening or or whose expertise is correct uh, to have in the story. I think the the key is to be engaged publicly. And I know not every academic should pursue social media. At the very least, every academic should lurk on social media to try to get to understand how these systems work. Um, And I'll just tell you a perfect example from Drexel. I don't think I would ever have I stumbled more and more deeply into the valuable sociological work and behavioral work around climate through Bob Brule mm-hmm. at, at Drexel, who was a—he started commenting on my blog and led me to whole bodies of scholarship that I never would have known about if I hadn't been engaged with him. Now that's a two—that's da- a two-person dance, right? You know, I—I I had a blog, so I was actually listening to readers. Right. Most journalists still, most newspapers have dropped their comment sections or they don't moderate the comments enough to make think that they have value. And so it really is, a, it's, it has to happen on both ends of the, the question. But if you're not, as my colleague at Pace University, Maria Lasque, used to say, social, social media doesn't work unless you're social.
0: Well, <laughs> right. And that, that's kind of my, been my hope with this set of calls is to provide a kind of, it's open to anybody, but it's a, it's meant to be uh, a conversation where journalists and experts and others um, who serve that sort of meso information level can get together and you know build some trust. Uh, I think one of the problems I've heard from some of my colleagues when they get called from they get a call from journalists journalist after a disaster, and you know the journalist's on deadline,
1: right. and
0: the academic may not be on deadline or they don't they can't get back to them as quickly or they talk for half an hour and their name doesn't appear in the story. I mean, those are just sort of clumsy, like getting to know you kind of things. I mean, there's a sort of deeper sense in which we should already have these relationships, ways of speaking with each other established before the disaster happens. Getting back to this notion that we're living in disaster all the time. Anyway, it's an ongoing process. If we're waiting for these individual events, we're going to, we're never going to really do this translation work that you're talking about as being so crucial.
1: Yeah. Well, this is so, I, we might have to do a part two and a part three of this because you're getting into really rich terrain. Um, the, uh, it's normalizing. I think what you're talking about is normalizing that the social components are an implicit part of what a journalist should ask about in thinking of a disaster. Uh, I'll give you actually a really good example that cross, cross, fil- cross filters, the climate and everything. The Bahamas, uh, the hurricane, uh, Dorian, I think it was Dorian that that ground its way across the uh, um, Abaco. Yeah, that's Dorian. Terrible destruction. There was only there was one journalist who really got it. He, I think his name was Shane Smith. He's like the Washington, Bureau Chief for the Guardian. And he went to the Bahamas uh, after, and he wrote a really great piece about um, the slum. It was nearly all Haitian migrant workers who were living in the Bahamas. You know. Building and maintaining the tourist economy, and living in a slum called the Mud M U D D, who were devastated. I remember the the um, Bahamas government was tweeting, you know, we have 800 other islands. They're great. They're, they were not damaged. You know, this is an event of poverty, an event of dislocation, of of deeply poor people from a dysfunctional functional country. That was the calamity. There, it was not climate change. And this right. is me, you know, writing. For thirty-three years, at that point, about climate change, saying not the story is not always climate change, and if you're not asking about those social, uh, geographic, other issues that are right in front of your face, then you're a total fail as a reporter. And I, I, think, you know, I'd love to think sociologists and and geographers can raise their hands and s- be part of the conversation. But it does some of that responsibility is definitely on the media to um, know where to point the the microphone.
0: Well, I think that's. I mean, you you know your career in the covering climate really speaks to this this problem of telling the story of slow disaster right i mean it's a hard oh my it's god a, yeah. a global, the global planetary process playing out in many different ways in, in many different places the process is painfully slow and then punctuated we think probably by things we call disasters but the timescale of selling advertising copy on the newspaper is different yeah. from the timescale of telling the story of uh, subsiding coast, right? I mean, how we possibly keep those two temporal frames in the same story.
1: And th- another aspect of this that came up today in the conversation I had with um, Rob Limbert and, uh, and uh, Jan, a Dutch um, uh, risk modeler, this came up in, in another context where the the thing that got everyone's attention, the thing that changed government policy on this unfolding COVID-19 epidemic was an imperial college model. Right. The one that said, you know, two million deaths in the United right. States. And the guy, the Dutch guy, Jan was saying, you know, that's a it's a pretty problematic. There's aspects of that model that were pretty problematic. And I said, you know what? It reminds me of this recent discussion in climate um. Climate world where the what's called RCP 8.5, as all the climate wonks will know, it's this high end scenario for emissions and impacts. It kind of became the norm to just to uh, studies were all built around this worst case scenario, and the media tended to amplify the worst case scenario. And so everything has this, and now you're seeing the stories saying, Well, it's not going to be so bad. <laughs> it's basically because we were focused on a scenario that was never, never realistic as a high, it was a high end scenario among many, but not probable. It was plausible, but not probable. Mm -hmm. And so, but, but, but this Imperial college model, which has that same characteristic is the thing that changed behavior of countries. So, so is that good or bad, you know, as, as a, as a reality focused guy, I think bad, but as a, an outcome focused guy, you go, well, i don't know maybe that is that good or bad i if if it created more rigor around uh you know uh, social distancing uh, and if i don't know if it, i mean in england uh, did you see the um mm-hmm. online today yesterday the crowds in this in the tube in london still it's yeah so maybe it hasn't really changed anything but it shows you that narrative and story sometimes uh, caricature does some sometimes jog us in ways that serve a purpose. And that, I think that's what's happened in some of the discourse around climate is people have been, uh, pleased enough with the drama that comes from the high end that they, uh, that's seen as job done. Although as you and I would definitely agree on, this is a long, <laughs> it's the longest emergency there is. And the longest one to fix as well.
0: Let me get to a comment here from Tom Berkland. I'm really glad that Tom is uh, following along and he is correcting me. He, there, there is an extension, Extension Disaster Education Network, Eden. I
1: just saw that and I'm very excited to see that. Yeah, I'm going to uh, tweet it and, as soon as we're off the call.
0: Yeah. And I was being a little cheeky before. I mean, there's an extraordinary number of disaster research centers around the world that are every day trying to figure out this issue of extension. But I think, you know, to come back to what you were talking about, the sort of older idea of an extension service to serve the formation of policy at more at the local level, at the state level. Um, I think we need that in every state. It can't just be one or two centers here and there or one or two two universities here and there. This has to be an all-out push to try to bring what's often locked up in the academy into the realm of service to policy and also to the private sector, um, you know, the idea that there's some sort of sacred space of the private sector and some sacred space of the academy. Uh, I mean, I think most of us have gotten past that, but too often that bridge is hard to build and maintain.
1: And I think it's doable. And this gets back to that issue of norms and and what is a university for and all that stuff. Um, this past year, there was a pretty exciting development at Columbia. I thought where, um, Susan Holgate, who works with corporate entities. Um, for the Earth Institute built a um, risk school, in this case for Alliance Bernstein, one of the big, they, they managed a mere, um, not seven trillion, it's, oh, half a trillion, they're, they're a half a trillion dollar money management. So it's BlackRock is seven trillion, right? So so they all went to the school, they came to Columbia, they sat through sort of multiple weeks off and on, the senior leadership with climate scientists to get comfortable with each other's language and how you describe risk of how you might integrate sea level rise into the models they use for uh, investment and the like. And it felt to me really great, but it's a hard model. It's sort of a service model. It's like a contractual thing. It's not like academia, right? And Mm -hmm. so even that, uh, you know, I think you could have all kinds of, we're trying to, we're actually building the spring, even before COVID-19, a resilience uh, journalism Project at Columbia to get journalists to think more about systems and to pause and and to learn uh, new sets of skills and how to who to call like right who 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 do you need to call that that's been a little delayed now because of what's going on but I think it's more relevant than ever but again that's not like a scholarly thing it's more of a service uh, right so uh, you know where does that live is it an open question still
0: what we were just talking about um, prompted a question from Kim Fortune. Uh, come back to this Imperial college model. Cause I do think that was an important, that will turn out to be an important part of this overall story whenever it's told, but what are some of the specific critiques of the, of the model? Can you come back to that a little bit?
1: Oh, I think it's just that it, uh, his, I, I could, I could follow up with him and uh, yeah. send the, the listener a, a note, but I think it's, it, it's a, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily say that that's a probable outcome. It was, it was more like, um, it's a high-end outcome that that got interpreted quickly as this is coming. And I think that was the issue that um, he was characterizing.
0: I see. And she had a second question. In your view, in your experience, what are some of the effective strategies for countering um, what she describes as Fox News fed disavowals of the significance of COVID-19. So I mean, this is a very specific question to our moment right now and sort of brings us back around to these questions of the responsibility and the work of reporters in this particular moment. How do you counter that? Uh, how, is it through just establishing more truthful narratives and hope that people find and latch onto the right narrative? Or is it a direct going countering that saying no this narrative is wrong and we need to correct it or some other
1: strategy it's a really this gets to this the importance of the social and behavioral sciences you know we're locked into a, a situation in the united states and not unique here there are other places like this where the cultural divides really do profoundly shape not only how you perceive the world but um you receive information about the world, so you're in a kind of a feedback loop, which is the kind of thing that led someone to take uh, some chloroquine-containing aquarium cleaner, thinking that was going to protect this couple from the virus after Trump mentioned chloroquine and uh, he died and she's in intensive care. Now hopefully those stories will kick back in ways that people through direct experience will realize, oh. Uh, maybe I do need to shelter in place. And, you know, unfortunately the, 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 the really scary part of what's unfolding is the delay factor. You know, this is, there's a reason numbers like 15 days are out there. It's because, um, people can be highly infectious and non-symptomatic for periods of many days. And that's just the going around spreading this, this gift. Um, and so people who were on the beaches the last you know last week in in Florida, these kids going back and hopefully not kissing their grandparents um, you know this is going to unfold in ways that no matter what your ideology is, you're going to see the consequences unfolding in, in your own lives. just today, um, I first learned you know I, I remember two months ago someone articulating to me that looking at the numbers that this is the, the definition of a big event like the Spanish flu is that, Oh, it was Don McNeil, my old friend from the New York times. He was on the, the daily. And he was saying that in Spanish flu, everyone knew someone who died, you know, 2% mortality rate is, is horrific, but really it's just 2%, right? But it meant that everyone knew someone who died. And, and I just, yesterday, uh, last night, a friend of mine died, Alan Finder at the time. She's my first direct person. My father is dying right now in, in a Connecticut hospital for unrelated reasons, but we're never going to be able to see him. He's going to pass away without us being able to be at his bedside because of COVID virus. He's, he's just been transferred today from the hospital to back to his, his um, nursing home and uh, but we'll never be able to see him and he's, he's going to die. And that's going to, that's not just me. That's going to be thousands and thousands of Americans, not just the ones. Again, this is not just the direct effect of this virus. It's affecting the healthcare system in ways that will be so profound. That whatever your beliefs, or whatever you're listening to, or whoever you think is right, you're going to have this in your face.
0: Uh, thank you for sharing that, and I. And actually, Gonzalo Batsaglupé, who's also listening, said thank you for sharing. It's a lot for us um, right now with parents who are in quarantine. It's not really um, the topic of of this call, and yet it's the topic of every call in a sense. And back to what you were saying that. Um, you know, that Spanish flu, there was nobody just like World War One itself and like World War Two. There was no family that wasn't touched by it. There was no workplace that wasn't touched by it. And I think right. we're headed that direction here. And it also, it's a, it's a question that's been up much on my mind. We have a few minutes left and maybe just we could chat about it a little bit. Is this, um, the focus naturally on telling the story of, of the dead and the and suffering. But there's going to be an enormous... Um, community of people who survived this yeah how do you tell that story
1: well i that maybe that goes back to that our the chair of sociology at uh, columbia Shamas khan who's encouraging a generation of kids to chronicle their stories um i i think there's some deeply valuable service there right now if for um to think about how to um build a community capacity for story um archiving story sharing around this episode you know we and i one thing you know we all have that if you talk to your 18 year old self blah 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 you know i i didn't keep a journal when i was younger um i went on an amazing transformative journey uh, right after college and didn't adequately chronicle it so that literally i have to interview some of the people i was with on this boat at the time to get a clear picture of what was going on um, so there's a great and important moment for people to uh, memorialize this i mean we're kind of doing that with facebook and sure. you, you know you can use these tools just to be scattershot and whatever or you can actually t- take a step back and say wow this is we're going through history right now and if, of course we're always going through history. <laughs> but do do journalists
0: take the time to do that? They're they're covering all of these stories of what's happening every in the event. But do journalists make a practice of of actually <laughs> sitting down and making notes to themselves about what it, what's doing to them? That because I'll tell um, you historians generally don't.
1: Um I'm getting a lot of feedback on your line I, from your I I'm not sure if you're hearing it there, but it's a little buzzy. Sorry. But I, I heard what you said. Um well, here's, you know, I, here I am 60, I'm going to be 64 tomorrow, actually, when I'm 64. And, um, I learned last year for the first time of something called auto, eth- auto ethnography. Right. Uh, my, my wife is a, an educator of educators, and she took a class at Manhattanville with a woman who uh, taught me, uh, we're just sitting around and, and it's examining your practice, examining yourself, examining your norms. Um, being analytical as a journalist should always be about your own practice and your own stuff. And I thought, man, that is such a great and important idea. Uh, so I, I do think journalists, maybe even less than other specialists, um, rarely re-examine their content. We are like sharks; we just keep swimming. You know, th- th- there's this there's a word in the newsroom. That's a great get. A great get is a like you know a scoop. I had plenty of gets, right? But it's it's harder to to sweep back and go, huh, you know, what actually happened because of that or for there unforeseen consequences or did I treat that guy fairly? And and we do tend to kind of just zoom forward. Um, so whether in journalism or investment banking or uh, corporate leadership or in the classroom, a little more auto-ethnography would be a good thing.
0: When you said, is my microphone better now? Are you able to hear me? It's
1: still doing that. It's funny. Yeah, I okay. don't know... Um, sounds a little like sometimes when a, unless the battery is, a, it's yeah, not a battery powered.
0: How are we now? Doing a little bit better now?
1: There's no buzz.
0: Okay. Yeah. So um, when you said auto ethnography, um, uh, the entire anthropology community <laughs> up and uh, Gonzalo sharing, there was a lot of after <laughs> 9-11, but we also have uh, Karen Gedbaugh, who's on the, on the call, she's uh, founder of The Lens in New Orleans, and she said, I founded the site after Katrina, and she's asked her staff right now to journal daily. So the, we, here we have working journalists, different media who are also trying to be attentive to life in that moment as well. And it's really important, not only maybe because of, I think, because of stories, the perspectives that you will let, be able to gather later, you know, looking back, but- sure. Also, um, PTSD for researchers and reporters is a thing
1: oh yeah yeah you, you should you should hear uh, Lori Garrett, the woman I mentioned earlier, the journalist who 's covered this stuff for decades, she went on. I, I should send you the the video link of her describing the the stress that goes into reporting on this, and not just the you know seeing people dying in emergency rooms, the, the actual stress of the intellectual process of trying to Take on the responsibility, the weight of daily decisions about what to say or not say is huge. And and you're right. I think the more we can do that, the better we'll all be. And I do think there there's still I um, again before this disaster, when I was at National Geographic Society, I was I envisioned something I think still has wonderful prospect. It was um, kind of like uh, StoryCorps, you know, the uh, NPR story sharing booths. In that case, I was trying to build a sort of a story core potential for people on the move, migrants. Right. And it would be a mapped world of story that you could click on and understand better, you know, for those who are able to do that. Um, there's a website called radio.garden. I don't know how they got that URL. That's a world map of radio stations. And it's, it's a It's like Google Earth, but it's every radio station on earth with a digital signal is there and you spin it and you can listen to Tajikistan or whatever. And imagine if there was a world now that where we could track later or now the voices of how this is changing things would be a great thing to do.
0: Amazing. I think I have about 10 more questions here. I wanted to get to, but we're, we're up on time. I did want to, maybe we can get you back because I wanted to talk about, reporting on pandemic and closed societies and how you think this is gonna change science and there's so many other things to get to, but. Well, we um,
1: can, if you, you we, you know, if you could fit it in, we would happily do another. But uh, that's one thing, you know, I, I just wanna give you one more little lens on the, the importance of your field. Disaster professionals, uh, Dennis Maletti, at the University of Colorado Boulder, retired now. Um, I, I had the privilege 13 years or so ago of going to Mexico City to a meeting uh, arranged by um, an astronaut, um, Rusty Schweikert, who heads this effort to limit our risk from incoming asteroids, right? Sounds pretty wonky and super disaster movie stuff, but it's a real deal, right? And so they had a scenario planning exercise. There were, there were military people there. I played the journalist. It was uh, So there was scientists, journalists, an astronaut, and Dennis Meletti was there representing the field of disaster sociology. And we're sitting through this exercise and someone was talking about, well, when they identified the asteroid that was going to hit uh, the Indian Ocean off of uh, Mumbai in, uh, in the year 2023, blah, blah, blah. And someone kind of just passingly said, oh, you know, when, when people panic, blah, blah, blah. And, and Dennis, he shot up his hand like a kid in the second grade. And, and he said, people don't panic. And he said, we know this, we know this. Here, I can show you a stack of studies showing that people comply. He's done a lot of work on hurricane evacuation, blah, blah, blah. And I just love that moment because it showed you um, that when expertise in these fields is in the room, and someone has to think of that, right? Someone has to say, hey, you know, we need them in the room. That can really change perceptions and change um, the context based on actual science. Pretty cool.
0: That's an amazing story. And, you know, it's the the second part of that, that the disaster researchers will sometimes point out is people don't panic, but elites do.
1: <laughs> right. They're all buying these. Yeah.
0: yeah. So <laughs> um, I That's think funny. if it's okay, we'll, um, I'm going to book you for a second, a sort of part two, we can talk a little bit more a little bit later, but I'm going to wrap this, this call up now, before I do that, I want to, um. Remind everybody that we have Adam Rogers tomorrow, and also, maybe when we um, get you back, Andy, we can talk about your book, which is coming out April seventh, The Human Planet. Planet. Sorry, The Human Planet Earth at the Dawn of the Anthropocene, coming out um, just in two weeks. Oh my gosh! With George Steinmetz as a as mm-hmm. a co-author. You're the too. first journalist I'm aware of that wrote about the Anthropocene.
1: Yeah, well, actually, I was on the Anthropocene Working Group for six years because I wrote something in 1992 in my first global warming book that essentially predicted this was going to... I wrote that Earth Scientists of the Future might name this era for uh, its causative element for us, and that was 1992. I I was thinking the future, like, you know, uh, Isaac Asimov novel, Future, and it just happened eight eight years later. (laughs) Yeah,
0: here we are. Anthropocene has now become a rubric that a lot of us are working with, so...
1: Yeah, it's pretty funny.
0: Andy, thanks so much. And I want to, again, promote your... Tell us again, we can catch you on the Sustain What...
1: Sustain What is the hashtag I'm using on Twitter and Facebook. And it's uh, just search by... People just search for my name, Revkin and uh, Sustain What and Earth Institute, they'll kind of find it.
0: We'll catch you on the Twitter sphere. Thanks again, Andy, for sharing this time. And everybody, we will see you tomorrow at five o'clock for COVID calls. Thanks.